Well, poor, poor, poor Apostle Paul. We left him in Athens a month ago, and I don't know what he's been doing, but we are going back to find him in Acts 17 today. So turn to Acts 17. We're going to spend two weeks in Athens because it was one of the greatest cities in the world. Still is. And what on earth is the Apostle Paul going to say when he's walking around trying to share the gospel with an entire ancient glorious city full of high-class know-it-alls? What is he going to say? So we're going in Acts 17, verse 16. Little review, because we, we took a break here and it's a good point to figure out where we've been. Here's a map of the second missionary journey. Of course, he started down in the lower right in Jerusalem. He went up through Damascus, Antioch, and then by land went back through the first missionary journey cities that he traveled to with Barnabas, but now he's with Silas and Timothy. Then he went in through Asia, and you remember, there was like hundreds of miles of no, and then God said, keep going, so they ended up through Troas and uh, Philippi. Remember, they got thrown in the slammer there, and then down through Thessalonica, Berea, uh, got chased out of there, and so he's all alone in Athens, which is over on the left, um, and he's waiting for his friends to show up, but he's all alone in Athens, and I really want us we're going to spend two weeks here. I really want us to grasp the gravity of this moment in ancient history because this city is truly one of the greatest cities in all the world. Athens is breathtaking. It hit its prime, the golden age of Greece, in 4-500 BC, but it is still, at the time of Paul's arrival, the birthplace of democracy and philosophy Thanks to Pericles, Socrates and his student Plato were both born in Athens. Aristotle arrived at age 17 and went to Plato's academy. Virtually all of Western civilization is built on their ideas. Your world is still shaped by their thoughts. When Paul arrived, Athens was still the most influential university city on earth, though its glory had passed. How could he share the gospel in this town? Well, we're going to learn today how to share the gospel, especially in a high-class place full of stuck-up people who think you're a weirdo who knows nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that in this sermon today, through this passage you would show us through the Apostle Paul what it means to be a bold witness for the gospel. Lord, in our day, there are giants, people who are smart, rich, people who are cultured, educated. They could make us feel intimidated. How could we ever tell them about a dead guy that rose again 2,000 years ago? But I pray that in this room today, you would help us, Lord, to never be intimidated. No matter who we're talking to or where we find ourselves, help us to see clearly that everyone needs the gospel. We pray that you would embolden us to share it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts 17, verse 16. Here we are. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Number one, here's what you can write down first. What do we see in the text? Paul was provoked by what he saw in the surrounding culture. He was provoked by what he saw in the surrounding culture. When it comes to being provoked inside, there's just a great distress, a spiritual um, bubbling up, and it could take on a lot of different forms in the original word, but the NIV says greatly distressed. 
It can include both offended on behalf of God and, and full of anguish for the people you see around you who are in great need. So it was anguish, distress, provoked right in his heart. Athens was beautiful, glorious, rich, famous, but, but lost. And it broke Paul's heart. He was waiting for his friends. Quick word to you if you are in a season of waiting in life. Didn't think life would take me here. How did I end up here? Not where I want to be. Where's everyone else? Hey, guess what? This whole thing happened because of a divine detour. Athens happened because God rerouted Paul's life. Maybe you're there right now and you can embrace it like he had to. Write this down. The city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. That's what distressed him. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. He saw that the city was full of idols. What is an idol? Well, it's a God substitute. The Greeks and the Romans worshipped thousands of gods. They could all help or harm you. There's a lot to worry about when there's thousands of gods in the ancient world. In fact, if you were to go out to sea, there's 3,000 gods just in the water you have to watch out for. Jared and I did some fishing in the Gulf of Mexico, which was pretty cool. Caught a lot of stuff, red snapper, trigger fish. It was bonitas. It was really cool. Sea turtle came by. We were a little worried about the sharks because sometimes when they find you catching stuff, they show up and they want to catch you, Right? We're a little worried about that, but at no point was I worried about 3,000 gods living in the water that wanted to come up and hurt me too. In the ancient world, you had to watch out for them. There were the big 12, of course, including Zeus, Hercules, right? And in this town, there were monuments to all the gods. One ancient writer said it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Wow. The Bible abounds in warnings about idolatry. The Bible is crystal clear that idols are false. They invite God's judgment. They are the result of demonic activity and revelation. And Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians nothing at all. Nothing, nothing at all. So the Bible is clear about this, but to the nations, they would credit all of their fame, their victory, their wealth, their wisdom to their gods. They would see it as the result of their gods that they are who they who they were. So the city was full of idols and this distressed Paul because all the glory was going to false gods and none of it was going to the one true God. Write this down. So he closely observed and understood their beliefs. He closely observed and understood their beliefs. He toured around and some of the words he saw in verse 16, he, he saw what it was and later in his sermon in verse 22, he said, I perceive this. Verse 23, I observed this as I passed along. So he was looking, he was watching, he was perceiving what makes this town tick and what a glorious city it was. He would go on to quote some of their own poets and authors. He took the tour and he took notes and then he was invited to speak in a little while. So he closely observed and understood their beliefs and he was hit with the wow factor for sure. I'd have to say for me, Probably the closest experience I had to the Apostle Paul's here in Athens is uh, I went to Oxford. I went, I went to Oxford, okay? Many people don't know this about me, um, but I went to Oxford. It was for a two-day conference. Uh, <laughs> you like that joke? 
because you're like, he didn't go to Oxford, you know. But uh, it was a two-day conference, but I did go. And it was, it was breathtaking to go to the place where Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, the place where, you know, C.S. Lewis taught, the place where some of the, some of the foremost thinkers of, of ever went. And, we, and I took the tour walking around Oxford, and they said that under Oxford... There, there's a library full of every book ever written in the English language. Every book. In fact, the library is so big, it, it's under the entire city, and there's little trains down there to take you out to the book you're looking for in the library that the city is built on. Now, that hit me so hard. I was like, wow, this city is literally sitting on top of the sum total of human learning. Wow. I was, I was blown away, but I thought to myself, they're so desperate to uncover the truth, and, and if they don't accept Jesus as Lord, they've missed it all. doesn't matter how big that library gets underground, they've missed it all. There was a bit of anguish there. He closely observed and understood their beliefs. For hundreds of years, the Greeks were searching for the meaning of life, the answer to life's greatest questions. How do matter and spirit and mind and virtue all go together in a way that brings heaven's order to the chaos on earth? What a noble task they were after. They were now desperate to uncover the next clue in their search for something, some, something that could bring it all together and make sense of it and bring peace and harmony on earth. He closely perceived and understood their beliefs. And then write this down. So, so is your heart broken for the lost? He models for us a heart that was provoked within. Is your heart broken for the lost? Do, do a heart check right now. Have, have you had a stress test done? Have you, have you had the echocardiogram? Have they ever looked into your heart to see what was going on there physically? Well, get that machine up right now. And how is your heart spiritually? Do you feel anguish? For the lost around you? Are you provoked on behalf of God when he has denied his glory? Are you worked up and yet motivated with pity to reach people who don't know Jesus? His heart shows us what it means to have a heart for the lost. Are you animated with energy when people insult your God and they believe a lie and they're going down the wrong path and it will lead them away from the Lord forever? Does that get you fired up? Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Do you care deeply about the lost? When you get home after a long day's work, and you get out of your car and you see your neighbor, do you wonder, where is she going forever? When you're at a family party and your most obnoxious relative is going on and on and on and on and on about his thoughts on the world, do you wonder, where is he going to spend eternity? Does it hit you? and generate a desire for that person to get saved. Do you have a heart for the lost? The fire can go out, but God can rekindle it. That anguish, that, that sense of being provoked by the culture around that prompts you to reach out, that's the heart of the gospel. Number one, Paul was provoked by what he saw in the surrounding culture. The city was full of idols. He closely observed and understood their beliefs. Is, is your heart broken for the lost? Number two, jot this down. So he discussed and debated with those who held different views. So he discussed and debated with those who held different views. It says in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue 
with the Jews and the devout persons. He always started with the Jewish people who knew the Old Testament as God's pattern. So he'd go to the religious people first and tell them, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Give them first shot. Then he went to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he, he reached out and he would, he would discuss, he would, he would debate. It says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I love that. He didn't show up to Athens and be like, I got to get my history books out. I better talk about, I better impress these people with my Jeopardy knowledge, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection, wherever he went. Different methods, same message. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For we bring, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So he discussed and debated with those who held different views. He reasoned with the mind. He reached out to the heart. He prompted the will. This is what evangelism looks like and should look like today. In the marketplace, in the synagogue. This is kind of a model of street evangelism as well. How many of you have ever at some point gone out and done like some form of street evangelism where you, you went out there and you handed out information or tried to tell people about Jesus or whatever? That will grow your faith, am I right? Walking around not knowing how people are going to react? Man, that will grow your faith. That's what he's doing here. This is a um, more of an apologetic form of evangelism. So apologetics is when you give a rational defense for the faith and you reason with people about their own understanding and then, and then you use kind of their angle to try and invite them to consider Christ. It's called apologetics. This is a biblical form of evangelism. It, we're going to get there in chapter 18, but it says he reasoned in verse 4, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, tried to persuade and it goes on to say that there were public debates going on with, with people like Apollos you know, is going to get saved. And there's people who are going after it, trying to reason with people. So this is called a, an apologetic form of evangelism. Discussion, debate, reason, questioning their beliefs, trying to persuade them. We're really big on apologetics here because I think if the next generation coming up doesn't learn to defend their faith, they won't hold on to it for very long. You have to know church is the place you can bring your questions where we can discuss and debate things. We've done several entire Bible studies on apologetics. If you're traveling soon, you can find these on our app, on our podcast, but pull up the series called Find Your Voice on our website. We learn to discuss cultural issues with grace and truth, God and government, uh, Islam, LGBTQ, uh, racism and violence. We've, we've gone there and learned how to have a conversation about these cultural issues in our day. Conversation killers we did last year where, you know, someone can say something, if, you know, like, well, you know, I never worship a God who sends people to hell. Well, the conversation is dead if you don't know what to say in that moment. So we took like five or six conversation killers, the toughest objections to the faith, and we learned how to talk about those things. If you're interested in apologetics, check those out online and, and learn to share your faith with others. 
Uh, next week, sometimes we've done this before, we'll just have a microphone out there where you can ask any question you want about faith, life, the Bible, whatever, because this is the place where we can discuss and debate things that's biblical. So he discussed and debated with those who held different views. He gives us an example of how to share our faith. Um, there are four kinds of people listed here that he's talking to. The, the first one we're not going to cover because we've already covered this a lot, but this is the religious people, all right? The Jews in the synagogue, we, we spent a lot of time with them. So we're going to go on to the second group, jot this down, pagans. Pagans believed in many gods and aimed to please and pacify them. Pagans believed in many gods and they aimed to please and pacify them. Most of the people the Apostle Paul encountered in the marketplace, if he just walked into any home on the street, he would have seen some deity that that person specifically was trying to pacify. Uh, maybe a bunch of them, but these people really believed that all these temples and all these gods had a bearing on every single moment of their life, and they worked hard to try and keep them happy. So these are the pagans. They believed in many gods and aimed to please and pacify them. It's hard for most of us to comprehend the fear and control that idols have over people in a polytheistic culture. Many gods. The fear and control on a moment-to-moment -moment basis that those idols or spirits hold on to these people with because you likely weren't born into that type of culture. But everything in your life, your crops, your health, your childbirth, the weather depended on the gods. And therefore you did a lot to try and keep them happy. One missionary many years ago in Dutch New Guinea shared a story that opened my eyes to see how spirits or, or false gods have control over the lives of those who fear them. He was going down the river one day with these people who he was newly getting to know, and these people would never scoop up the river water and drink it in their palms. They would always scoop it up, toss it up, and they became experts at catching the water in the air. And he thought it was just kind of a, oh, well, they like to toss the water up and drink it, you know. But one day he found out that they do that because they believe the spirits in the water can go straight into your soul if you drink from your hand. So they have to throw it up and then drink it so no spirit gets inside of them. That's how their culture drank water. That every single time they drank, they were showing how afraid they were of these gods, these spirits. So I don't think we know what that means. Later, he took a bath in the river, and uh, the people were, were like, no, 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 you can't do that. You're going to anger the gods of the river. So they were afraid moment by moment because of the river gods. He asked them once, let's cut a channel out because then it would be easier to get places. Oh, the spirits make the river. We can't anger them by rerouting it. That's just one area. So people who live in a polytheistic culture, there's tremendous fear as they try and control these gods or pacify them or appease them. Pagans believed in many gods and aimed to please and pacify them. Therefore, they're very confused when someone shows up telling them there is just one God in control of every single thing. Jot this down. Then there were Stoics. Second group here, Stoics. They relied on reason, virtue, and duty. Stoicism. Stoics relied on reason, virtue and duty. We still use this word today, right? Well, he's a pretty stoic guy. Uh, kind of a, when it comes to stoicism, rational, unemotional, serious, that's kind of what it still means to be a stoic person. But this grew out of a school of philosophy that started right there in Athens. And when it comes to the idea of being stoic, 
They followed the teachings of Zeno, who lived 300 BC. They taught near the Stoa of, or pillars in Athens, and so them standing by stone pillars gave them their name. Oh, they're Stoics. They're the pillar standers, right? And it's almost like that stone pillar, that's kind of like that. It almost became that like stone pillar, very Stoic. Stoicism relied on reason, virtue, and duty. They took pride in their self-reliance, their ability to endure life, which was highly fatalistic. They didn't believe they had control, so they were just like a stone statue, determined to make it through. Their belief in God was pantheistic. The pantheistic view means everything around you is divine. So the rocks and the trees and the birds and the bees is not just physical, it's spiritual substance. So imagine that. The whole world around you is divine. And when you believe that you are really caught up in this fatalistic world that you can't control, all you can do is just understand how it works, be reasonable and rational and calm down and live in line with things that will work. They sought to harmonize all humanity through this effort of surrendering to the, to the fatal machine around them. And that's what it means to be in line with the God or gods. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you are a person like that. Very stoic, very serious, very reasonable and rational, unemotional, dutiful and determined. And that's the way you're going to make it through this life. Will it work? Will it work? They believed it would. So there were the Stoics, and they came up and talked to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, verse 18, conversed with him. Imagine their mindset talking to the Apostle Paul. Then there were the Epicureans. Write this down. Epicureans emphasized enjoyment of life. Enjoyment of life, free of pain and fear. So there's the pillars. There's the life. It's determined and dark. Just find your place. Don't freak out. We're all going to get through this. Calm down. Those are the Stoics. And then over here are the Epicureans. And the Epicureans are like, boring. Let's live a little. Life is short and then you die. Who's going to the wine party? Let's travel. YOLO. I mean, this is the Epicureans now. They're like, yawn on those Vulcans over there. Let's get out and have a little fun, right? The Epicureans emphasized enjoyment of life, free of pain and fear. Came from Epicurus, who lived around the same time as Zeno. Forget all that serious stuff. There's a world to experience. They weren't just partiers. They weren't just like spring break forever. They prided themselves on a way of life, an approach to life that minimized pain, maximized pleasure in its highest form. Very high-class, cultured form of enjoyment. Not, not out there, you know, being reckless, but just the serenity of, of, of understanding that you can just live. They were indifferent to the gods and thought maybe they weren't even around, right? Who, know, who cares about them, right? They were indifferent to all that. The spiritual world didn't matter very much. The world isn't divine. It's just dust. And so have some fun before you go off and die. And by the way, there's nothing after the afterlife. So don't worry. Be happy. Go help others to find they're happy as well. This is the Epicurean way of life. 
Pleasure is the path, pain is the enemy, there's no afterlife. Maybe you are someone like this, maybe you know someone like this. Chill out, easy going, let's have some fun. No regrets, that is the way. It's interesting how these are still two very huge approaches to life today, am I right? Like, they wouldn't call themselves Stoics, you know, I follow Zeta, you know, but, but they are self-determined to get through this life and, and try and control everything they can, right, and while, while surrendering to just whatever is will be. God helps those who help themselves. There are people who that's their motto. And then there are people who are like, forget it, I'm traveling, let's get out there, right? Adventure awaits, and let's just flee away from all the harder parts of this life and have as much fun as humanly possible before we die. So there are the Stoics, there are the Epicureans, and they represented here the highest class of people who are like creating the books on how to build your life and your world on these views back then. And they were talking to the Apostle Paul. They weren't impressed with Paul. In verse 18, they said, what does this babbler wish to say? They weren't impressed. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. That's quite an accusation. Socrates got killed for that. They forced him to drink hemlock because he was teaching foreign divinities. So a little slap there because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Epicureans, Stoics, here's a question we can ask here. Can you discuss your faith with courage and confidence? Look at Paul go. Look at him go. Pagans, Stoics, Epicureans. He's discussing his faith with them with courage and confidence. What an example he's setting for you. You know, when I was at Oxford for just a few days, there were a lot of super smart people there, way smarter than I was. We would be at dinner eating or whatever. I would say to myself, don't say anything dumb, right? It was my only goal. Don't say anything dumb. My favorite part of Oxford was when I found a, 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 a burger joint called Atomic Burger. That was my favorite part of Oxford. I'm like, these are my people. These are my people. They had a menu with no words on it. It was just pictures. And I'm like, that's what I need. Just show me what it is. I don't need any more words around here. Yeah, maybe you feel intimidated around other people who maybe have been more educated than you. Here goes Paul. Now, Paul was highly educated, so he could hold his own with them. But maybe you're like, I don't know how to share my faith with courage and confidence. They called him a babbler. They insulted him. If you dig into that word, it's fascinating. It actually ties back into one of the uh, original philosophers in the area. But the idea is truth is kind of made up of these bits and then you put them together and figure it all out. Well, they, they called him this in a way that's derogatory. He's like a bird picking up little bits of truth and trying to, trying to feed us with that. What a, what a loser. He doesn't know nothing. They insulted him. They insulted him. But he got a second hearing. Some were intrigued. Some were intrigued. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's verse 19. This is where, this is like, well, we're going to cover this next week, but this is the court of heaven and earth where ideas were tested saying may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears we wish to know therefore what these things mean so he got a second hearing that's really encouraging and you could get a second hearing if you share your faith with courage and confidence if you figure well, what is it that you believe what you know where do you come from and okay well, let me share this with you if you have 
great spiritual conversations with other people, God can give you a second hearing that maybe you never thought you would get. But can you discuss your faith with courage and confidence? Do you know people today, like the pagans back then, who are superstitious? Like, they're really afraid, and there's these ways they're trying to, like, make sure their sports team wins, you know, like their lucky socks. Uh, I was in an Uber once, and this guy was wearing this charm bracelet with Egyptian charms on it. And I was like, oh, what's that? He goes, ah, it's like an Egyptian thing. It didn't seem like he wanted to talk about it, but, you know, he can't go anywhere. So I was like, well, tell me about it. Well, yeah, I guess they're supposed to give you luck. Do you think it gives you luck? No. Why are you wearing it? My mom makes me wear it. She thinks I'm going to get into a car accident. Oh, so he's wearing an Egyptian magic charm bracelet for luck that his mom wants him to have, even though he doesn't believe that. Ha! We talked about faith and what could really give you a safer passage through this life, and even more importantly, what makes you safe forever. The lucky charm bracelet ain't going to do it. We had a conversation about that. Are there people in your life who trust things like horoscopes or witchcraft or palm reading or the, you know, there was, some, there was a conference in Oak Brook at one point that I saw. They did foot reading. You, gave, you give them your foot and they'll tell you your future. Foot reading? Where does that come from? I don't think you could see anything on the bottom of my foot that you would want to see. Surely nothing that would tell you about my future. But today, people seem like they'll believe anything if it gives them some insight into their future. Do you know people who are like the pagans of old who are trying to appease the spiritual realm or hack into it in some way? Hey, they need Jesus. Do you know people today like the Stoics who strive to do their best, work hard, structure their life, take care of others, rational, determined, hold it together, and they really think that's going to work forever? Do you know people like that? And do you know that's going to fail them in the end? They need Jesus. Do you know people who are running away from their problems? They just want to live it up. The next adventure is out there. And they just won't stop and sit. But, but that fun is going to end. They need Jesus. Hey, can you discuss your faith with courage and confidence to the people around you? In your heart is their anguish over the reality that they are not going to heaven that it's not working for them. In this big, glorious, great city, Paul looked around and he wasn't fooled. He said, these people need Jesus. Is that your heart? Number one, Paul was provoked by what he saw in the surrounding culture. Number two, he discussed and debated with those who held different views. Number three, he told them about Jesus and invited everyone to repent. He told them about Jesus and invited everyone to repent. What is he going to say in this world-class city full of smarty-pantses? It says he was preaching, verse 18, Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. Wow. The gospel is a message for the whole world. Maybe you're a deep thinker. Maybe you live in a rational frame of mind. Maybe you strive to know the truth to help make a better world. Listen, the wisdom of man will not work without God. Maybe you're after the comfort and the ease and the pleasure, the thrills and the chills that this life can offer you and you just want the next high or the next low where you can chill out in your comfy pajamas and have no worries. That won't work for you without God. Whatever your approach is, you need the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24, or 25, Paul reflected on this shortly after his time in Athens 
He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That is the gospel. That's what he preached in this wonderful city. He told them about Jesus and invited everyone to repent. So write this down. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Do you believe Jesus is alive? And maybe you have tried to build your life on the wisdom that you could accumulate, the learning that you have, your sense of control and reason and understanding. And if that hasn't failed you already, it will soon and it will forever. Your wisdom is not a solid foundation on which you can stand forever. It will fail you. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Maybe you can't figure out why you can't stay happy for so long and it comes and it goes and you're up and you're down and why can't I just be happy? Because your pursuit of pleasure on earth will fail you forever. If it hasn't already, it will soon. And it will fail you forever. Only in Christ will you find pleasures forevermore at the right hand of the Holy God who made you. That's the only place where you will find what you're looking for. Do you believe Jesus is alive? That's what the whole book of Acts is about. Jesus is alive and we should go tell the world about it. They scoffed at this idea. Verse 18, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, as if there are many. Jesus and the resurrection, that is what he was preaching. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Paul was careful to not give them a new rational framework, a new ethical code. He wasn't trying to one-up Socrates. He avoided lofty speech and impressive delivery. He plainly presented one God, one mediator, Jesus Christ. Repent, believe the gospel, and you will be saved forever. That was his message. That's our message. Jesus alone is risen now, and he rules the seen and the unseen realms by his glorious power. So let me ask you, is that what you believe? Is that what you believe? Or are you building your life on something that will fail you forever? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Are you on the solid rock, or are you on sinking sand? Do you believe Jesus is alive? This is the wisdom from God that can be found nowhere else on earth. He told them about Jesus and invited everyone to repent. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Write this down. Have you repented and turned to Jesus as Savior? Have you repented and turned to Jesus as Savior? I love that people got baptized this morning. That's your way of saying, I am a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you repented and turned to Jesus as Savior? How many of you have seen the movie The Jesus Revolution on Netflix? Raise your hand, or in the theater. You've got to see it. We missed it in the theater, but we watched it on Netflix last night. It's the story of Chuck Smith and the Jesus Revolution, Greg Laurie. Oh my goodness, it made me cry. I don't know if it made you cry, but it blew me away to see how God started one of the biggest revivals in the history of the United States. 
Greg Laurie, did any of you go to the Greg Laurie revival that came to Chicago several years ago? How many of you went to that? They filled up the, uh, the whole stadium in Chicago like several times. Greg Laurie came to town. But he was just this hippie punk back in high school who, you know, was trying to care for his mom who was a single mom. And, and he didn't want anything to do with God. But one day at his high school, a guy who looked like Jesus named Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee got up at Greg Laurie's high school and shared the gospel. And Greg Laurie says this. Here's what I remember. Lonnie said, Jesus taught either you are for me or you are against me. Which is it? And Greg Laurie said, I need to check this out. And he got saved and he became a Christian. And he's basically following in the shadows of Billy Graham, filling up stadiums with people so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it started when he repented and he turned to Jesus as Savior. So I ask you that same question. Jesus said you're either for me or against me. Are you for him or are you against him? It's one or the other and there's none of this. There's none of this at the gates of heaven. None of this. This won't work. Are you for him or are you against him? Have you repented and turned to Jesus? And jot this down. Are you ready to go and tell everyone the good news? If you have found the pearl of great price, why wouldn't you go and tell the world that Jesus is alive? If Paul can do it in Athens, totally outgunned, all alone, you can tell someone about Jesus Christ with courage and confidence. You can tell them. Why don't you pray this week that God gives you a chance to share your faith with someone else? Well, as we close here, let's go to the, the Lord in prayer before we worship one last time. Jesus, we give you glory because here in Athens, one of the greatest cities in the history of the world, Paul courageously shared his faith with others. With confidence, he presented the plain gospel. He was treated as a fool. He was mocked and scorned. They insulted him, yet they couldn't stop listening. They couldn't stop listening. And so next week is going to be awesome. Paul sharing the gospel with the wisest people on earth. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the opportunity to share the gospel with people this week. People who are smart, people who are superstitious, those who are rational and determined, and those who are emotional and flighty. Help us to share the gospel with everyone around us. Open a door this week. And I pray for anyone in the room today who maybe doesn't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. They cannot decisively say that in their life they have been for him, and therefore they have been against him. Maybe right now they have been convicted in their heart that they need a savior. Whatever they have been trying has not worked. It isn't working, and it won't work forever. Maybe they are facing that terrifying reality that they are standing on sinking sand and that it will not get them what they thought. Lord, I pray that right now they would look up and that they would see that you are not here to condemn them, but to save them. May they cry out in their own hearts. May they pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, I believe. Save me forever. I believe you died. I believe you rose again. I believe in Jesus and the resurrection and that you will bring me into your glory forever. This I believe. Lord, if they pray that in their own heart, reassure them that they are saved once and for all and fill them with the joy that only heaven can bring them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. 